You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. This is the All Access Legends podcast. So I want to jump right into it, Spencer. You joined the Supersonics in 1970 and subsequently sued the NBA due to eligibility rules, which eventually became known as the Haywood v. NBA ruling. So what was going on through your head at that time, and were you still able to focus on basketball at a high level when you initially joined the Supersonics? I know I wasn't because my first uh, five days after I signed with the Seattle Supersonics, I signed the uniform contract. And immediately I was sued by the NBA for uh, putting an injunction on me not to play. And then I sued them right back for the rights to play. So then the case was on its way. And then also you had the NC2A nibbling at my tail as well because they were looking at it would be the fall of the NC2A game as we know it, and that's what they were promoting. But they could not join in into the case publicly because if they did, then they would say that they were making money off the athlete. So there I was in the middle of this of this battle, and I remember walking out on the floor 10 days later to play a game, and once I got out on the floor, and I had my injunction to play the next 10 days, the announcer came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, we have an illegal player on the floor, number 24, and this game is being played under protest. So all of the players from the Chicago Bulls, Bob Love, Chet Walk, all of them under orders from their owner, walked off the floor and left me and the Sonics up on the floor by ourselves. And the Sonics went down, the rest of the guys went and sat on the bench. So I just stood out on the middle of the floor. And that's when people started throwing bottles and hard cups because back in the 70s, in the early 70s, 1971 and 70s, when this case was taking place, there were real bottles. We didn't have plastic. (laughs) Yeah, so the case was on. And right away I knew that I was into something very, very big and very deep because all of the press all over the world was talking about how this case would be so significant. And I, I definitely, at the time, I really wanted to step out, Brad. I really wanted to say, hey, because I had an agreement with the Seattle Supersonics that if it got so bad, we would step out and go back into the draft for the following year. Or maybe work something out with the NBA that I would stay with the Sonics. Cool. And, and I guess my next question is, you know, why were you the first person to, you know, sue the NBA? Why? I guess why Why really didn't, why were you the first? I, I often wonder why, but uh, I, so I spoke to Wilt Chamberlain, who mm-hmm. left college early, who left Kansas early, 
and he went with the Globetrotters and played the one year there and then came back into the NBA. I asked him, and he, he had a very profound answer. I, I sat down, I, I was like thinking, well, what is he going to say? He said, because I wasn't stupid like you. Guess <laughs> <laughs> you have to have a little bit of crazy in you. Yeah, which meant that, you know, he, he did not want to challenge that whole case. Mm-hmm. He thought it would be, you know, devastating in terms of, like, his career as far as a college player and so forth and so on. So then when you when you look at Oscar Robinson, all the guys who were qualified to do this, no one did it before. It just mm-hmm. never, it just never crossed their mind. They never even thought about it. Gotcha. Yeah, and it seems like every year there, there's, you know, critics, uh, coaches, fans who are constantly trying to get, you know, rid of this rule. And I guess that leads right to my next question is, you know, ultimately, do you think this is good for the game? You know, you've seen it kind of progress over, you know, 40 years or so. You know, is this ultimately good for the future of, of the NBA? Yes, it is. It's great for the game because it's great for the college games. It's great for uh, the NBA and more importantly, it's great for the athletes because in the world of athletics, you have the tennis players who are glorified at age 15. Please come on and play tennis. What a phenom. And and the same thing with hockey. When Wayne Gretzky wanted to play at age 18, come on, Wayne, you are just so great. And, and it just goes on and on. You got baseball. Uh, the, the young boy from from this young man from from my area out here in Las Vegas was now playing with Washington. Uh, I can't think of his name with the beard and all, but I mean he's glorified. And then you get to basketball and football, which are predominantly African American sports. No, you can't. You can't do. You can't come in and, and and make a living for your family. You can't come in and make a living for your for your for your neighborhood, for your city, because I hate to say it, labor mm-hmm. is always hanging in the background, always hanging over our head for just wanting to help yourself. Now, the reason that I thought the case, my mother was still in Silver City picking cotton. My whole family was there in Silver City, Mississippi, picking cotton for $2 a day. $2 a day, mind you, from sunup to sundown, back-breaking work. My mother had gotten so bad and her back had went out, she was crawling on the ground picking cotton. They call it crawling on your knees. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have the right to pick her up out of her of a stupor and help my family that's insanity that's insanity and yet we have yet we have the nc2a who is grossing i mean even with before turning this six seven billion dollars just received a new contract this year with cbs for 8.6 billion dollars and yet the players are being charged i saw where bridges was uh, from michigan state was just mm-hmm. uh she just got a, a fine for taking $40. $40 for food. Taking $40 for food. And then, so you got, you know, so you got these players. And then one mother was, uh, her son is being charged because she, she didn't have heat. She didn't wow. have no heat in her house. So 
So that somebody paid $400 for her to get her heat back on, and now he's in Ellsworth. I'm like, wow, you're making all this money. Now, let's go to the economics of it all. Now, with the coaches making up from 7 to $10 million a year, the assistant coaches are making three to four. The towel boys, the person that clean up the towel, the locker room, they make 150 I mean, it just go on and on. The town itself, where you're located. Say if you're located in Lawrence, Kansas, you got the automobile industry making money off the players. You got the restaurants making money. Everybody makes money off this athlete. Well, when, money does it, around. when does it right? And then, so, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's just horrible the way it is. And the problem with the case, with, with no one knowing, that there's a case to take place because I, I hear people now talking about, well, the NBA decided to let them come in. No, they didn't. I fight all the way to the Supreme Court, Haywood versus the NBA. Now, the NBA nor the NBA PA has saw fit to put it in my name. They, they are hiding the facts here because... Uh, you have the Oscar Robinson rule, you have the Larry Bird rule, and the only original rule that exists is mine, which is the Spencer Hayward rule. And yet, there's no history about it. So people are, are arguing a point outside of the NBA and on sports stations and so on about this ruling. The NBA gave it to them. This, somebody else gave it. No, I fought for this rule. You want people to know that. Well, I can hear your passion in your voice when you're talking about it. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I lived and died by this thing, and, mm -hmm. and for years, for for years, I was held out of the Hall of Fame for that ruling. I have been ostracized for this is 48 years now, basically. Been a long time, but yeah, I mean, it's such yeah, an influential rule too. Right. So what happened is. You know, like when I go visit my, my daughters on campus and so on, and it was like, oh, he's a great player, but that's the guy that screwed up our college program. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> well, what kind of madness is this? Yes. So I guess, you know, looking at your career as a whole, you know, what do you, what do you think that you're known for? You know, over all the places you played, you know, all the stuff that you've done to influence the game. What, what are you known for in your eyes? In my eyes, I would be known for this case, but because no one knows that I'm the guy who created this case and did this case, then, it's, it's, you know, we don't get it. The second reason they would know me is because of the 1968 Olympics when we had no chance in winning a gold medal and saving mm -hmm. our country in the 68 Olympics. And then a young player, me, which was... 18 years old when I was selected, turned 19 at the, at the games, went out and dominated, and dominated in such a way that I set the scoring record for the for, for USA basketball, the rebound record. And that was in 68, right? Record, 1968, troubled times and troubled water. <laughs> but yeah, I've known for that too, for old heads who, who know the game. The old heads always talk about that. 
<laughs> so I guess kind of going off that, you know, really kind of known as a big rebounder throughout your whole career. You know, a stat that I you know, found was, you know, you had five seasons of 12 or more rebounds per game, which is pretty astonishing. So I guess that leads me into my next question. What can you contribute that success to? And I guess what would you say to younger people who are looking, you know, who are kind of big rebounders and seeing the game kind of transition more to a, a shooting game? What would you say to those players? Well, rebounding came to me because of, you know, a desire, desire to rebound and being an old cotton picker. And that's not a joke. It's a for real thing because that's what I was mm-hmm. before I, I, I came up north and became a basketball player. I was a cotton picker. We worked from sun up to sundown. So to to see a ball go loose up on that backboard, it belonged to me. Because it was a it was a desire, you know, like playing with my brothers in Silver City, Mississippi. After we had gotten away from the cotton field, How, our ball didn't bounce. I mean, and we just had never we got a bouncing ball. We just we just loved to rebound. We would box each other. We practice at it. We, it was a desire to get the ball mm-hmm. and get it. You know, and, and when I went to high school, Will Robinson always told me, "You cannot play." without the ball. The most important thing is to get the ball. If you don't have it, you got to go out and get it. Got to go get it. Mm-hmm. Got to get it off the glass. Perfect. And I guess it leads me kind of in my last question here. Constantly are, you know, advocating on behalf of retired players, you know, on the board of the Retired Players Association. You know, why why are you why are you so passionate about, you know, helping and advocating causes that, you know, are important to you know, the retired players in the association? about it that's how I came into the league advocating for players advocating for players rights that's what the case was all about was advocating for players and players rights so uh, of course it's carry it has carried over into my life it's been my life work because what is it that you have for your individual self if you don't have for others and for our players who have earned the accolades, the rights, the, the health care, and by the way, the health care, the, the NBA, PA, the Chris Paul, LeBron James, Steph Curry, and Kevin Durant, all of those players have made possible for us. It's just, that's like $15 million a year for our families, for our, for us, for our children. That's a, that's a huge thing. And when I ran for the board maybe five years ago, that was my platform in which I ran on that we should have this health care. So I, I've been I just I just love my guys. I love being around the retired players, love being in all activity. It's just uh, it's something that we have and this kinship and this love for each other that we have to go out and protect each other. So for me, that's been my life work. I've always I've always felt that. That's why I fought all the way to the Supreme Court. And the reason I say that is because I could have not fought the case to the Supreme Court and said, well, no, I'll just go back into the draft and, and go on because I'll be the number one draft player and start all over again or stay with Seattle and not fight the case. But I knew that there were players such as me who had was in dire straits and, and, and needed help, but yet they couldn't get help. So 
I just stood and followed the case. So I have that activism that's always been with me. Yeah, right. It kind of comes full circle, you know. You you really have been advocating. Full circle. Awesome. Being the chairman of the board now, gosh, I mean, I I just think think of it as such a great honor to be the chairman of the board of the NBA retired players. And it's, it's something that I treasure, not for my individualism, but for what I can do. The All Access Legends Podcast is brought to you by the National Basketball Retired Players Association. 